Welcome to Pull Back, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. I'm Kyla Houston, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Heyo. And we're joined once again by our activist friend, Robert Miller. Double feature. Double feature. Mm. We are recording this back to back because what's a book report without another book report due on the same day? I think I think we might release the IPCC one first. Oh no! <laughs> okay, well then, spoiler alert for our episode after this one. Maybe I guess we'll decide later. We'll have to cut out that little double feature part and splice it into the other episode. Well, I'm just thinking like the IPCC report's kind of more timely than this one guy's random book. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So we're talking about the IPCC report, which is the extremely grim look into the next 30 years of our future, thanks to the United Nations compiling a bunch of information from a bunch of scientists. Are you guys ready? Woo! Never. Woo! Robbie didn't read it. Robbie Robbie didn't do the reading, Kristen. <laughs> what, you didn't read the 4,000-page report? <laughs> yeah, it is 4,000 pages. I feel like we should start by telling listeners that none of us fully read it. No, I read the 42-page policymaker summary, which to me felt like enough. I read the 100-page FAQ. Ooh, oh. look at you. So you're the actual ex expert. I skim-read the 42 pages for policymakers. <laughs> I mostly just looked at the graphs. There were some nice graphs. They're excellent graphs. I, I think the same graphs were in the FAQ, and I would have to agree. Like, I very much enjoyed the graphs. They made the 96 pages fly by. I was like, 96 <laughs> pages. Then I was like, oh, mostly this is graphs. <laughs> I, I do have, um, like, quite a bit that I pulled from the FAQ, but it's all direct quotes. So it won't be very interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, we can, we can maybe bring up the stuff as it becomes relevant. But I thought it would be helpful to just uh, give people a quick refresher on what even is an IPCC report and why they should care. <laughs> yeah, who are who is the IPCC? Yeah, so the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's like the UN agency whose job it is to assess science that's related to climate change. It was founded in the late 80s, um, which is like back when we thought we could do stuff about the environment. And uh, it's an intergovernmental organization, which makes it really tricky um, because it's both a science body and a government body. So it's summarizing science, but it also has to do so in a way that its member states will agree to it, which has always made it a little tricky. Oh, is that why it's such a big deal that this time the report is like, it was definitely fossil fuel companies that put us in this bind, you guys? <laughs> yes. Because yeah. they weren't allowed to say that. Yeah, because this language gets combed over by 195 governments, and like they have to approve everything that's said. And I'm sure that the Canadian government is like, I got to take out that part on oil, and the Australian government's <laughs> like, take that part on coal out of there. Add a sentence on the middle class and those working hard to join it. <laughs> that's just a little Liberal Party joke for you guys. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> the IPCC, um, one of the big things that it does is it produces these assessment reports every like five-ish years. Um, and its first one was in 1990. This is its sixth assessment report that was just released. Um, and basically, they're a summary of what the current state of climate science is. So as we referenced before, uh, the report this time is just shy of 4,000 pages, and it cites 14,000 studies. Apparently, this is longer than the usual report is, but like, Holy shit. <laughs> 4,000 pages. I was like, oh, I'll read this report. No problem. And I opened it and I was like, uh, 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 who, who has read this report? Nobody. Nobody could have possibly ever read this. <laughs> yes. But I, I thought that the summary report was pretty good. Um, I mean, it's a very dry read. But <laughs> yeah, I'm skimming through the FAQ now and it's actually excellent. Yeah, the FAQ was good. I didn't read the whole thing, but... Yeah. I looked at the policymaker thing and I was like, this is too boring. I've already read this other book twice for an episode <laughs> of this podcast. I'm going straight to the FAQ, which is what I do for anything I want to learn. I'm, I go to, straight to the website's FAQ. I <laughs> love it. <laughs> so one thing that I found was really interesting about the way that this report sets things up is it draws on different emissions scenarios. So in all of its findings, it's like, 
engaging with what the range of possibilities are in terms of what our climate response is from here. And that's, I think, where it gets a lot of its leverage, you know, in saying like, oh, yeah, we're fucked, but also it matters what we do next. Yeah, I really, I think that was something they also were doing in the report number six. And it was something that I remember being very impactful then as well. And something I would put into a lot of presentations when I was talking about the climate crisis and what to do about it is that it's like, it is, it is possible to do things differently. (laughs) Actually, very important to be able to say. Definitely. So I have a a quick section on what makes this report different. Um, And I've got four different things. So first is that it's the most definitive report so far. Um, So I guess you guys probably found similar to when I was reading it, um, lots of strong language, you know? Strong language for the IPCC, let's be clear. Yeah, true. For something that needs to get passed through 200 governments. (laughs) It's pretty strong wording. Yeah, it definitely struck me how many times it was just like absolute certainty or extremely likely or with extremely high confidence. You're like, I think they even said certainly at several points during some of the stuff. Yeah, and unequivocal, um, which I was reading an article in the Narwhal about the IPCC report, and there was a a climate scientist sort of breaking down how they choose what words go in. There's a statistical significance that's like attached to each of the different, like whether you say uh, more likely than not or very likely or unequivocally, you know. And so scientists are like combing over like, oh, do we say this is very likely or extremely likely (laughs) or certain, you know? Yeah, I figured it was like that because putting in like confidence intervals in something that is designed for general public use is usually not a good idea in terms of science communication. So standardizing that as like a set of very likelies, extremely likelies or somewhat likelies is probably a really good idea. But yeah, it is striking how many more very likelies and extremely likelies there are in this report than what I remember from AR5. Because that was one of the criticisms that I had going into like using AR5 for climate education was that it was like, it is very obviously kind of like hedging its bets a lot of the time and that it is probably unnecessarily conservative. Yeah. So that's true of a lot of climate science reports that is something that I've noticed changing in the last year and a half to two years is more and more scientists are using strong language. I actually have a a frequently asked question that kind of covers that as well. I don't know if you guys wanted to get into that already. That covers language choices or? Yeah, maybe I didn't copy it down though. Let me just take a look here. Sure. While you're looking, um, I just want to point point out that there's one sentence in the report that is seen as being particularly definitive and important. And it says, quote, it is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean and land. Widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere and biosphere have occurred, which is kind of dry language. But and it seems way too late for this to happen. But it's the first time that there has been no room left for wiggle room in one of these reports on the fact that human caused climate change is causing like fucked up effects. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I feel like this report is almost like a decade late, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they're telling us facts and I'm like, yeah, doesn't everyone already know that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> But that's what makes it kind of exciting. And I I didn't write down what they wrote about the language, but basically, I think they covered this in an episode of Front Burner, the podcast as well, when they were talking about the IPCC report this time around, where they they used the modeling that they've been using for this particular report is so much more advanced now yes. than it was for the last report that, um, and they have so much more data from like airplanes and weather reports and climate science has just blown up in the last decade that that they didn't have all of the exact like the data for the last few and this time they're like nope we finally have it here we go and i was like okay but yeah it's like there are more there's um better climate observations but also there's been huge advances in attribution studies um using like um sophisticated statistical models which is a big deal because being able to attribute the link between climate change and extreme weather events 
is a huge part of the challenge in terms of getting governments to buy into the fact that they should act seriously about the crisis. Which is a bummer, but here we are in the world we live in. Here we are, yeah. Um, So the second thing that um, makes this report different is that it really hammers home the point that climate change is happening now. It's the first IPCC report to establish that extreme weather events are happening because of climate change. And the report also finds like several other things are worse than they previously thought. So for example, on sea level rise, at their sort of like middle scenario for what emissions reductions could be, which is actually overly optimistic, sea levels are expected to rise by two feet by the end of the century, whereas we previously thought that it would only be one. Well, and if it's if it follows the same pattern that climate science has for the last 50 years, we're still underestimating. Because every time we learn something new, it's like, oh, this is actually much worse <laughs> than we thought it was, or it's happening much sooner. Like, I think a lot of the the fires and storms that like this, these weather events that we're experiencing in the last two years, climate scientists have been calling these for decades. Like, I I think I've mentioned this on a previous episode, but when I was a kid, a climate scientist came to our school and gave an assembly talking about what our adulthood would look look like. And he's pretty much bang on for what he was (laughs) saying, except that he said it would happen in the 2030s and we're in the 2020s. Yeah, pretty much. This actually, I think, is a good time to point out one of my favorite infographics from this report. An infographic with hexagons that, like, shows... um, whether there's been an increase in things like heat waves and uh, increased rain and stuff like that over the last, uh, I think, 100 years. But I, I thought that was really striking. Like you can see like almost everywhere in the world, there has been more extreme heat events. There has been greater rainfall. You know, there's been more drought. Pretty fucked up. Over 500 people in British Columbia died because of the heat waves last month. So, like, and that's, you know, that's where I live. So, <laughs> and also my gra- my grandmother's been on an evacuation notice for the wildfires up north for, what, three weeks now? But she has nothing if she leaves her house. And there's no wildfire insurance up there. So she has put a giant sprinkler on the roof of her house. And she's just like, fuck it. I'm going to fight this fire if it comes for me. I'm like, okay, grandma, but like, you can come to the coast and stay with me. That's like not a problem. <laughs> I think she's okay. Yeah, that was one of the things that was impactful for me whenever I'm thinking about like the IPCC reports was that in 20, I think it was what, 2018? 20, yeah, 2018, um, they released a special report on what global warming at 1.5 degrees would look like. And I remember that coming on the heels of like a summer of catastrophic forest fires. And it gave that sort of like extra resonance to it. To just sort of like see that validated in a report of this magnitude and then having the same thing happen with IPCC 6 where it's like it's coming out as, you know, the entirety of the Aegean coast is on fire, that Russia is combating like forest fires the size of US states in Siberia and like the interior of BC is basically a maelstrom of fire. The north of Ontario, I think, has had a pretty rough go of it, too. Well, and the heat waves across the West have been, like, completely unprecedented. I would like to say um, my grandmother's not just lost her mind. She has, like, a little lake in her backyard that her, like, that her hose, like, <laughs> links to. So she, she does have a large source of water that she would use to fight this fire. She's not just... No, and there is, like, um, there's a whole debate in emergency management about like under what conditions um, is it better for communities to just kind of stand their ground? Um, Because it's a really dangerous tightrope. On the one hand, if a community can defend against the wildfire with like those kinds of approaches, then it helps a lot. Um, And being evacuated sucks. But on the other hand, if the risks are really high, if it doesn't work, a bunch of people die. So... Yeah, I guess like a police officer came to my grandma's house and was like, don't make us drag you out of here. And she's like, good luck. My grandma's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like this is also relevant to like see that in the report. Like one of the things that jumped out at me was um, point A, point three, point five. 
very dry way of referring to that. Um, but <laughs> human influence has likely increased the chance of compound extreme events since the 1950s. This includes increases in the frequency of concurrent heat waves and droughts on a global scale, fire weathers in some regions of all inhabited con- continents, and compound flooding in some loca- locations. So it's like seeing that literally written in the report and you're like, this is what we are experiencing literally on the day that the report is released. Yeah, it feels so weird to like read what I experience as reality in like the dry clinical language of science, you know? <laughs> and for that to be a breakthrough that they're saying these things. And it's like, why would it... Uh, I can see the fires from here, you know? I can smell them. They're in my eyes all the time. But I mean, this is good. Like, um, the level of certainty in this report is going to be a really fierce tool for people fighting climate cases in court. Like, I'm excited for them. And it's going to be a really interesting, now that the Canadian election has been called just this last week, I I hope it'll come up um, during the election I mean, even the conservatives will have to say something about this, right? Oh, my God. Don't get me started about how wild the conservatives' carbon pricing plan is. (laughs) And also, if you see any liberal MPs or candidates on any social media talking about climate, please remind them that they bought a pipeline. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Third, um, Third thing that makes this report different is that it concludes that many of the climate effects um, that we're seeing are actually irreversible and will continue to get worse even after we reach net zero. Oh, I have a whole thing from the frequently asked questions on that. Go to it. Wind her up. <laughs> yeah, now might be, would be just as good a, a time as ever. So the, the frequently asked question was, and I have quite a little bit to quote here, so I'll, I'll let you guys know when it's when it's through because it just keeps going. <laughs> How quickly would we see the effects of reducing carbon dioxide emissions is the question. So the effects of substantial reductions in carbon uh, dioxide emissions would not be apparent immediately, and the time required to detect the effects would depend on the scale and pace of emissions reductions. Under the lower emissions scenarios considered in this report, the increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations would slow visibly after about 5 to 10 years, while the slowing down of global surface uh, warming would be detectable after about 20 to 30 years. The effects on regional precipitation trends would only become apparent after several decades. Could climate change be reversed by removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere? Is another question. Deliberate removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere could reverse, or i.e. change the direction of, some aspects of climate change. However, this will only happen if it results in a net reduction in the total amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that is, if deliberate removals are larger than emissions. Some climate change trends, such as the increase in global surface temperature, would start to reverse within a few years. Other aspects of climate change would take decades, for example, permafrost thawing, or centuries, for example, acidification of the deep ocean to reverse. And some, such as sea level rise, would take centuries to millennia to change direction. Yeah, that got, that stopped me in my tracks when I read millennia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then there's a whole part here on um, the Arctic permafrost is a big pool of carbon that is sensitive to climate change. And this is like the part that frightened me the most. So the next question that had to do with this, like, can this be reversed or is it permanent damage that we've already done? And the question was, can continued melting of the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets be reversed? How long would it take for them to grow back? Evidence from the, distant, from the distant past shows that some parts of the Earth system might take hundreds to thousands of years to fully adjust to changes in climate. This means that some of the consequences of human-induced climate change will continue for a very long time, even if atmospheric heat-trapping gas levels and global temperatures are stabilized or reduced in the future. This is especially true for the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets, which grow much more slowly than they retreat. If the current melting of these ice sheets continues for long enough, it becomes effectively irreversible on human timescales, as does the sea level rise caused by that melting. Humans are changing the climate, and there are mechanisms that amplify the warming in the polar regions, Arctic and Antarctic. The Arctic is already warming faster than anywhere else. This is significant because these colder high latitudes are home to our two remaining ice sheets, in Antarctica and Greenland. 
ice sheets are huge reservoirs of frozen fresh water built up by tens of thousands of years of snowfall. If they were to completely melt, the water released would raise global sea levels by about 65 meters. Oh, sorry, Kyla. I think that's only 6.5. Are you sure? Because I copied and pasted this. Yeah, I read it somewhere else that it was 6.5, which also just like from a common sense check, I think makes a lot more sense. I was like... (laughs) <laughs> I, I was like, it's still Whoa. a staggering amount, though, given that like two meters is going to be catastrophic for the planet. Yeah. yeah. yeah OK, because I copied and pasted that. They forgot the decimal point. OK, <laughs> I mean, few, but still, holy shit. So so understanding how these ice sheets are affected by warming of nearby oceanate atmosphere is therefore uh, critically important. The Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets are already slowly responding to recent changes in climate, but it takes a long time for these huge masses of ice to adjust to changes in global temperature. That means that the full effects of a warming climate may take hundreds or thousands of years to play out. An important question is whether these changes can eventually be reversed once levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are stabilized or reduced by humans and natural processes. Records from the past can help us answer this question. For at least the last 800,000 years, the Earth has followed cycles of gradual cooling followed by rapid warming caused by natural processes. During cooling phases, more and more ocean water is gradually deposited as snowfall, causing ice sheets to grow and sea level to slowly decrease. During warming phases, the ice sheets melt more quickly, resulting in more rapid rises in sea level. Ice sheets build up very slowly because growth relies on the steady accumulation of falling snow that eventually compacts into ice. As the climate cools, areas that can accumulate snow expand, reflecting back more sunlight that otherwise would keep the Earth warmer. This means that once started, glacial uh, glacial climates develop rapidly. However, as the climate cools, the amount of moisture that the air can hold tends to decrease. As a result, even though glaciations begin quite quickly, it takes tens of thousands of years for ice sheets to grow to a point where they are in balance with the colder climate. Ice sheets retreat more quickly than they grow because of processes that, once triggered, drive self-reinforcing ice loss. For ice sheets that are mostly resting on bedrock above sea level, like the Greenland ice sheet, the main self-reinforcing loop that affects them is the elevation mass balance feedback. In this situation, the altitude of the ice sheet surface decreases as it melts, exposing the sheet to warmer air. The lowered surface uh, then melts even more, lowering it faster still, until eventually the whole ice sheet disappears. In places where the ice sheet rests instead on bedrock that is below sea level, and which also deepens inland, including many parts of the Antarctic ice sheet, an important process called marine ice sheet instability is thought to drive rapid retreat. This happens when the part of the ice sheet that is surrounded by seawater melts. That leads to additional thinning, which in turn accelerates the motion of the glaciers that feed into these areas. Oh, I think they talked about this in um, that novel Ministry for the Future. There's a whole project to like pump uh, pump water on top of the ice to fix it. Most wonkish novel I've ever read, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so like, like the basically the end of this whole thing is like in this sense, these changes are therefore irreversible, since the ice sheets would take much longer to regrow than the decades or centuries for which modern society is able to plan. I guess unless we're pumping ice on top of ice, <laughs> like in that book. Yeah. Although that was fiction, I don't know if that works in reality. <laughs> yeah, probably doesn't. That was like ninety nine percent of what I saved from the frequently asked questions because I was absolutely horrified. <laughs> and I thought it was a really good example of what you're talking about, where the the stuff that we've already done, a lot of it is irreversible because it just takes a long time for Earth to do stuff in some cases. Like, it doesn't take very long to melt ice, but it takes a long time to build up the processes that hold that ice. And all of these Arctic um, ice like thing like the glaciers and stuff they're all holding a shitload of carbon so the more they melt the more they release carbon the more it kind of self-feeds itself yeah um so yeah those feedback loops um i don't think it's possible to overestimate like how much that's gonna be our middle of the century um just like even if we get to net zero this report shows and a lot of climate science supports that like those lock-in effects are going to continue to make the effects worse from like the middle of the century until depending on how we act, it might start to get better again around the end of the century. Yeah. And that like the reason that this report is 4,000 pages long is like that thing that I just read, that one 
feedback loop is just one of like a, a million ways that the earth is like acting weird and we don't even understand all of the things we've done yet, you know? I, it's kind of like impressive to think about the immensity of the this project, you know, like bringing together 14,000 climate science studies into a coherent summary of what the whole body of knowledge is. Maybe I'm just a nerd, but that's pretty amazing. No, it is very <laughs> No, cool. I loved it. All right, I've got the fourth and final um, way that this report is different, at least the final of the ones I thought of. You guys might have more. It emphasizes that we have very little time to act um, if we want to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming. And uh, we've, in fact, already experienced 1.1 degrees of warming, so that's pretty fucked. We're also, like, even in the most optimistic scenarios of what we do, we're probably getting to 1.5 degrees in 20 years. And actually, there's enough greenhouse greenhouse gases in the atmosphere right now to raise the planet's temperature um, by 1.5 degrees. The only reason it hasn't is the cooling effect of all the air pollution we have. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Ah. Yeah, when you first started that, I was like, wait a second. No, they they were saying that like at least one point, they were saying 1.5 is guaranteed and 1.6 is most likely even in the most aggressive response that they modeled. Am I confused? Or in the 90s, what weren't we trying to, weren't all the climate scientists making goals for like under one degree of warming? Wasn't that, didn't that used to be the benchmark, one degree? It was one degree, then it was two degrees, then it was 1.5. But okay, no one's actually going to make 1.5. It's probably we're on track for three degrees, which is not good. Anything yeah. above 1.5 is going to be hugely catastrophic for human life. Three degrees or more could set off things like that ice sheet collapse that would raise sea levels by 6.5 meters. Like 6.5 meters. <laughs> yeah, 6.5, not 65. <laughs> would still flood most major coastal cities, though. <laughs> yeah, and like I think about it as well in terms of like, I know the permafrost melt was mentioned in this report, and I think they used the same figures as they had in the special report on 1.5 degrees. And like, how much of the permafrost is at risk of melting? And I was just like, okay, yeah. Like net zero for human activities is going to get dwarfed by the sheer vo- like quantity of carbon in the permafrost. I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, we're screwed. But um, this report very much shows that there's like an almost linear relationship between the emissions that are produced and warming. Yeah. So the upshot of that is every emission that we reduce has a real impact. Yeah. One of the things that I think was also very cool in this report that jumped out at me was figure SPM5, (laughs) which shows changes in annual mean surface temperature, precipitation, and soil moisture. And in large part, because they included actually their sort of simulated changes, and then they also have the observed changes. Because now that we have reached more than one degree of warming, we can actually start to validate some of these models, at least at that scale. And so it was interesting to see how close their models actually got. Like it slightly overestimated warming in Antarctica, and that was it. Um, But otherwise, it's pretty much spot on. And then to see immediately afterwards, based on these models, what 1.5, 2, and 4 degrees looks like, and it's just absolutely terrifying. And I thought that was good in like an, a very academic sense, like it is very bad that we've already hit one degree of warming and long enough that we can start to test some of our models to check our assumptions. Yeah, cool that we know for sure that cyclones have gotten worse. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's going to be a really uh, shitty genre of climate change reporting over the next couple, like next two decades is going to be people being like, these were our models 20 years ago. And here's where they have matched up to what actually happened now that we've hit 1.5. And it's like, great. Oh, man. I guess at least we know things. I don't know. (laughs) I I don't know. It makes me just angry because it's like, we knew. We have the the models. Why did we let it happen, you know? And it's just... (sighs) Exxon. (laughs) But yeah, even the rest of this figure was also really good. Um, and I wanted to highlight it as well, because the, the next step is then also looking at precipitation models. And 
it does a very good like one two punch because if you're looking at just the precipitation models you're like oh okay this isn't so bad like the sahara is going to get a lot more moisture dropping on it and so is like saudi arabia but otherwise it looks like until we hit like four degrees not not too ridiculous and then it switches into uh figure d in that section which is the amount of soil moisture change that's going to happen and like you realize that, okay, a little bit more precipitation is going to be completely offset by hotter, drier conditions, causing more evaporation. And so it's just like, oh yeah, all at 1.5 degrees, like all of South America is like starting to face desertification. Well, it's also like, um, so Canada has a senior climatologist um, and he was talking about how rain patterns have like changed in, in Canada. Um, just I think it gives an illustrative example. So in cities like Toronto, places in Ontario, what has happened over the climate change era is that there's been a lot of really intense spring rainfall, but it's not like it's evenly dispersed. It's just really extreme rainfalls that sit and cause floods, but like the ecosystem can't properly absorb. So even if you're getting more rain in places that like maybe don't get so much rain. It's not necessarily a good thing because it could just cause short-term floods. And then overall, you have more drought periods anyway. Yeah. And I think that's what the the sort of soil moisture graph shows really well is that it's like, it doesn't matter if precipitation increases, you're still facing much worse conditions um, when it comes to like growing crops. Um, I think that was, um, speaking of unusual rainfall, there was, I can't remember the city in China that was flooded and they were facing like a foot of rain per hour. Um, and one of the cool things about Chinese civilization is that sometimes they have really accurate records going back millennia. Uh, apparently this city had like a pretty good like weather reporting archive and their meteorolog meteorological society was able to say with complete confidence that they had never seen that before in 5,000 years of Chinese history. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he was like, huh. Wow. <laughs> That's not good. People died, actually, because their subway system flooded so fast that people could not evacuate. Well, I think they also lost power to their hospital for several hours. I'm sure people died in that. Ugh. I what I really appreciated about the the frequently asked questions uh, thing that they did is the a lot of the questions were kind of addressing that climate skepticism that has developed in the zeitgeist. Thank you to all of the evil people who did that. Um, <laughs> and a lot of the questions were like directly answering like how do we know that it, it's people and why couldn't we say it was people before so definitively and what does this mean for cities and what does this mean for for this and um i found th that really helpful so if if anyone listening to this episode for some reason is a climate skeptic it doesn't feel like my our demographic but if you are <laughs> the frequently asked questions it's very like i know i was talking about how long it is i read it in like half an hour they've written it so that anybody can read it yeah it was very good the report's a little dry i won't lie <laughs> the faq is great i i found it very interesting <laughs> and like the graphs are also really great because it's like Moving on to SPM6, which I also... Oh my really god, Because <laughs> it's just like, oh yeah, you're looking at dots. Oh, that's neat. Ah, anyone can look at dots. And you're like, oh, these dots are terrifying. Oh, is this the hot temperature extremes over land chart? Yeah. Yeah, I liked that one. That was a good one. Yeah, so they use dots for people who are not looking at it directly like we are. Um, they use dots to represent like events that happen once every 10 years or events that happen once every 50 years. And then use those dots to sort of illustrate how that frequency changes at various temperature breakpoints. So you have one dot in 10 at uh, 1850 to 1900 temperatures, which at our current like one degree is now three dots out of 10 dots. At 1.5, it becomes four dots out of 10 dots. At two degrees, it becomes six dots out of 10 dots. And then at four degrees, it becomes basically 10 dots out of 10 dots. 
And just to contextualize this in case people don't know what the dots mean, it's the number of times that you, you would on average experience a heat wave. So think about how many times you've had a heat wave this year. Right. And it's just like seeing that in like a very definitive visual medium to be like, yeah, right now or in, in, in the past, we would have expected a year this hot once every 10 years. And in the future, we are going to be expecting a year this cool once every 10 years, like there will be an almost complete inversion of sort of like the frequency of normal versus abnormal events. Yeah, this is where I was thinking also about um, uninhabitable Earth um, to book on the effects of climate change. And one of the things in there is the more carbon in the atmosphere, like, and the hotter it is, the more difficult it is to do things like think, Uh, (laughs) just like... (laughs) Everything about our lives is going to change in just really subtle ways as well as the really extreme ones. Yeah. uh, In either the previous episode or the next episode, (laughs) we talk about uh, another book, The The Waste-Free World. And I I found that one, when I was reading it, I, I was kind of directly comparing it to Uninhabitable Earth because Uninhabitable Earth is bleak. It is a very dark look into the future it doesn't offer a lot of hope it does offer some hope but mostly it's like it offers exactly as much hope as we deserve (laughs) yeah yeah it's like this is what's going to happen this is what we might be able to do do to like make it stop whereas the book we just read uh, as a reaction for this podcast is almost the exact opposite in its blind optimism where it's like (laughs) oh these problems are so easy to solve and we can just solve them tomorrow. And I was like, oh, I I kind of like reading these books together to kind of maybe find myself in a middle middle ground. Hala, it's strange to hear you talking so negatively about that book because I remember that Robbie really liked it. (laughs) (laughs) I have just, now that I've done that podcast and we've recorded it, uh, if I ever think about that book again, it will be too many times. Okay, well, that's fair. I just have it in my brain because we just recorded that. But also, it's just, I don't know, it was nice to read something, even though it was kind of dumb, it was really positive. And it was was just kind of refreshing. To be clear, that's the thing for the next episode. The IPCC report was in no way positive. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then Uninhabitable Earth is, everybody should go read that book. But it's... But like, bring some chocolate with you because it's like... Bleak. Yeah, like it's 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 dry in some parts and it's terrifying in other parts and there's not like a lot of in between. So I did read like a fiction book in between. I'd read like a chapter and then I'd like switch to a book that was fun. <laughs> it's like a know? panic attack. If a panic attack wrote a book, that's uninhabitable. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I kind of find the IPCC report hopeful in a sense that it's like one of the things that I found very challenging in the past talking about climate issues is just that it's like if you are talking about it seriously uh, and taking the full like precautionary approach, you kind of sounded like a bit of a lunatic. And so it's actually really nice that the IPCC report has come out and just sort of like validated all of the stuff that people would have called me crazy for saying. So in some senses, I think that it's kind of op- almost optimistic, that it's just like, no, actually, this is the science. We have the data to say this with confidence. And that's new and that's good. And this report fills me with a certain kind of hope. That's really nice. It makes me sad that it's new. Yeah, guys, I feel like we brushed too quickly over the fact that linking human-caused climate change to the effects of climate change happened for the first time in an IPC report this year. (laughs) Yeah, but it happened. Ah, It happened. But it happened, yeah, and that matters. Uh, Trump would still find a way to... Oh, yeah. The report is completely meaningless in terms of like its ability to convert diehard climate deniers. Like, no one's going to read this. How effective then do you think it'll be against climate delayers, though? That's a more interesting question. Especially because I think one of the salient arguments that I've seen being made is that even like climate deniers are shifting towards climate doomers, who are basically just like, it's all locked in anyways, just don't have grandkids. And I, I'm not entirely sure that those people will have as hopeful of a reading of the IPCC report as I will. Well, that's what was nice about the Waste Free World book that we just read, <laughs> is that uh, it, it, it kind of looks at how uh, big companies that have been climate um, 
delayers for so long are finally investing in in greener technology and uh, greener practices. That was what I what I enjoyed about that book. It's also what I enjoy about Murray Bookchin. <laughs> <laughs> forty minutes again before I mentioned him in a podcast. Oh yeah, you're right. We made it forty minutes. But uh, again, it's like it's that feeling of like, yes, we have to do the impossible or we will face the unthinkable is probably one of his most enduring and like accessible quotations. And like the IPCC report puts that in very stark terms is that it's like, yeah, it looks like it's probably going to be impossible that their most optimistic possible route still locks us into 1.6 and millennia of climate uh, uncertainty and chaos. Yeah, I'm just worried because like the IPCC report came out in probably like the best possible conditions you could hope for in terms of it making a splash. Like the entire country was on fire. We broke many heat records, you know, you name your disaster. It's been in the news. And yet, at least at the start of the election campaign in Canada, it has not been at all about climate change. Admittedly, some of that is Afghanistan. And um, that is an important story that like, is very timely, and of course, is going to dominate agendas. But like child care is the next issue. And I'm not negating the importance of that, but I don't think climate change is having its day in the way that I would have expected <laughs> given the report. Well, we've said this before as well. Like, uh, climate justice affects almost every other aspect of life, right? Like you can't fix the climate problem without having climate justice, which would involve bringing women and people of color and, you know, people with disabilities with us and into this like new world. I, I don't know. I, I don't say it quite as well as um, my favorite other podcast, How to Save a Planet, but th they do a really good job of just pointing out that like childcare is important, but that can be part of our climate change solution. That's why. The no, yeah, yeah, I'm not negating the importance of childcare. I think it's a great policy. Of course, we should have cheap childcare that's government provided. But what I'm saying is like at some point, if we're going to have real climate action during an election, climate change is going to have to be the voting issue. And to me, it's just really disappointing that it doesn't look like it's even in the top three. Yeah, I mean, that's that's why I that's why I'm like such a big fan of the, the idea of a, a Green New Deal is like, oh, it should affect every aspect of the economy, right? Yes. Yeah. And I also feel like this election is going to be highly anomalous because it's basically going to be a plebiscite on COVID. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, to a large extent, I'm also like, the liberals bought a pipeline, like there's no way that an election is going to be seriously about climate change issue just because of an IPCC report. No, but like there are progressive parties that have a more aggressive agenda than the liberals on climate, and they could be making it an issue, you know? I mean, the NDP wants to win seats in Alberta, and the Green Party is imploding. Yeah, but if the public so... cared enough about climate change, then they would have to make climate change an agenda, right? Like, yeah. I emailed like six people, as soon, like the day they called the election, I emailed my MP and I emailed Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau and Annamie Paul. And I was like, hello, you don't know me, but please make climate change your number one thing this year. And then I also just did the uh, voters poll on CBC and I, they were like, what's your number one issue? And I'm like, climate change. <laughs> yeah. And um, for people who are Canadian who are interested in climate issues, uh, 350 Canada is doing a climate voters campaign. So if you're interested, sign up to say that you're voting on climate change. Um, do other things too, but that at least um, will be able to help them send a signal that climate is an issue that you're going to vote on. And so they should talk to. Yeah. 350.org is super cool. Very neat. But yeah, I think one of the things as well was that I was just like, I was thinking back to when XR was active uh, here. And like the IPCC special report on 1.5 was a non-trivial reason why people joined and looked to direct action as a way to solve these issues. So it's like, that's part of the reason why I don't really care whether or not electoral politics switches based on the IPCC report, because I'm more interested in like how it's going to affect people who are looking at this from the perspective of joining direct action groups, of starting to like create or like demand better, not at the ballot box, but like on railways and on highways and stuff like that. 
Yeah, I don't know, though. I mean, we have this fight every time we do a podcast, but I think legislative change matters. Kristen, we're, we're inviting an activist onto the show. I feel like that <laughs> comes with the territory. Robbie's always like, blockade stuff. And I'm like, but votes. I'm a political scientist. <laughs> you can do both. I do it's both. It's true. It's true. You can. But it's, like, but it's looking at, from my perspective, it's looking at it as saying that it's like electoral politics is never going to shift because someone very smart said something. And it's never going to shift because of like what in union organizing people refer to as air wars, which is like media blitzes and social media campaigns. It's like electoral politics will begin to shift when they literally cannot govern. Like if you want to create rapid change in in electoral system, that's where you're going to get it. Whether it's like stopping Kenny's disastrous program in Alberta um, or like making federal parties wake up to the need to do climate action, like that's going to happen because of a combination of like voting pressure and strike pressure and direct action pressure and everything else. Yeah, but like we also have a once in every two to five years um, opportunity right now to change our government. So I don't know. I think the attention should be on voting, <laughs> at least until September 20th. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, people should definitely vote and they should probably vote for the NDP. Yeah, the Green Party is in a tailspin towards death right now. It's not good. Of course, it's the year that I bought a membership. (laughs) Uh, Me too. (laughs) Just omni shambles. It's so bad. (laughs) (laughs) I think another really good piece of advice uh, that I uh, am straight up stealing from How to Save a Planet is uh, think about what you are good at. You don't necessarily need to be the person at the front of a picket line and you can't you you can make voting important but you don't need to make it your only thing. If you are working as a a, a mid-level manager in an office building, you know, ask your building to bring in composting. You know what I mean? Like there's stuff that you can do. I know that none of that is like big and we need big big change, but drops make a difference, you know? Like you get that composting in your building and suddenly more people are thinking about it. And that might encourage them to then do more in their own life. And like a single drop doesn't make a wave, right? But together, maybe we can. (laughs) And that's a good way to like think about personal activity or like personal actions. I think that was the first time I came onto this podcast was to talk about that. Is that it's like, do it with an eye to how can this be scaled up? How can I turn like composting at my office into like having those conversations with people so that we can start to do more than composting in the office or like do one little thing and then think about where it can take you. The other thing is that um, like, I think a lot of people who maybe weren't as initiated into climate activism and things like that um, read the IPCC report or read like news coverage of it and felt immense anxiety and grief and despair. And I think one thing that like is important to say to that is just get involved with something. It genuinely, like, in addition to helping the world, will make you feel a whole ton better about everything because it's a way of taking agency um, over a crisis that is going to impact us profoundly. That's true. I started I started donating like a very small amount of money monthly to Greenpeace, and that helped ease a little bit of my anxiety. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The best cure for anxiety is actually doing something, even if it's small. Even if it's small. And then, I don't know, I feel like I've started small, and each time I do something, it feels small, but it's a little bit bigger than the last thing I did, you know? Yeah, you just become comfortable with more things. Like, the first time I went out and did um, flyers in a grocery store, there were, like, little placards that say, I wish this wasn't wrapped in plastic. First time I did that, I was fucking petrified. But, you know, you get used to it. You're like, oh, this actually isn't so radical. And it's a message I agree with. And actually, nobody's like upset about me doing this. And maybe I can do more. And then the people who are upset about it, oftentimes you're just like, huh? (laughs) Like it becomes much less terrifying once someone is like being upset about it like once or twice. And they're just upset about it for reasons that are totally incomprehensible. Yes. Yeah. 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 And it's like as easy as maybe you're really good at maybe maybe you're really good at administration and you can offer a couple of hours a month to an NGO or whatever. You know, there's something everybody can do. Low key, 
desperately need that. Yeah, and it's a really good time to join a climate group. I think there's a lot of gearing up for September and October climate strike events. So, Robbie, if you actually do need that, let, send me an email because I suddenly have a little <laughs> bit more free time. <laughs> oh, um, I, I'm also trying to do more of that. It's just that it's like one of the things that is like very common um, in like talking to environmental NGOs is that they have lots of people who love to do the work. And not a lot of people who like to make sure that the budget spreadsheets are all like up to date and that people are getting paid <laughs> and that there's like, you know, the basic administrative stuff of running an organization done. Um, if you have those kinds of skills, they are incredibly, incredibly needed and desired in the environmental movement. Please. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it all myself. <laughs> well. Incredible. Did anyone have anything else they wanted to add about the this IPCC report? Just that there's a big climate meeting happening in Scotland in November. It's called the UN Conference of the Parties or COP26. So this is like the big meeting of minds for governments about the climate. It's where um, climate treaties in theory get signed. So I think it would be really helpful if you could write your representative um, to tell them that you care about the climate and that you're worried about the IPCC report. And also Canadians register to vote as quickly as you can, especially if you're looking for a mail-in ballot, you'll have to do that pretty soon. My closing thoughts are IPCC AR6 is much more like firm, but it is still probably going to be the most conservative possible interpretation of the science. And um, so no matter how bad the IPCC report makes our future look, uh, it is worse. Just remember that some diplomat from Russia had to approve every sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Keep that in the back of your mind. And then also remember that uh, even if it looks impossible, uh, doing the impossible is better than the alternative. So let's get to it. Yeah. Well said. Hear, hear. Okay, well... Thanks for listening to another very uplifting episode of our show. You can reach out to us at Pullback Podcast if you'd like to have a conversation about this. We're on Twitter and we are always happy to chat. We'll catch you guys on the next one. Cheerio. Cheerio.